0: Deep, deep Dive, and a podcast, podcast of CGT Radio, go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our
1: conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable.
0: Hello everybody, welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm Hu Yang. Good to have you for this ride. The World Economic Forum added another 31 years to the century-long timetable it says it will take to reach gender parity. Disheartening? Maybe. What does it take to close the gender gap? And we take a look at the vibrant musical scene in China. The Chinese version of the Phantom of the Opera and original productions of Chinese content adapted from popular TV dramas have drawn audiences back to the theater. What's on the horizon for musical theaters in China? For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line, first on today's show. A recent report published by the World Economic Forum reveals that it could take 131 years to reach equality between men and women around the world. Well, there's one silver lining, though. The gender gap around the world is closing. Well, that's the good news. So let's take a look at uh, what's going on now. Uh, Well, tell us about the Gender Gap Report. What parameters do researchers
2: consider in producing this report? Sure, we're talking about the annual Global Gender Gap Report published by the World Economic Forum, or WEF. And according to its latest report published this year, it could now take 131 years to close the global gender gap after an entire generation of progress was lost to COVID-19. And also, according to the World Economic Forum, worldwide gender inequality looked set to endure until 2154, despite a modest improvement since the height of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, I think the organization, I mean, the World Economic Forum basically look at the gender equality or gender inequality situation from four dimensions. That is economic opportunities, education, health and also political leadership. And this report is basically focusing on benchmarking parity between women and men across countries and regions. And this year it has included 146 countries to look at the overall global gender gap situation.
0: All right. Well, there's one fact that kind of just went by in in all the things that you just said, but it was really startling for me to hear that is a whole generation's progress was lost in the matter of three years of COVID. Oh, Josh, what's the takeaway for you once looking at all these findings?
1: Well, I think it goes to show that these issues are really deeply rooted in cultural and social norms right and like many issues that are they take a long time to change and i and i think that progress generally speaking historically is not linear or it's not very smooth in terms of trajectory right that it's a it's a lot of ups and downs and sadly i think that when crisis happens any kind of crisis um historically speaking and covid definitely is going to be one of the, if not the biggest one of our lifetimes. And certainly that's going to have an effect on progress, just generally speaking. And so um, I I think that for me, it just illustrates that point overall.
0: Right. Well, from the female perspective, I really don't find this sadly shocking at all. Um, It's just for Mm -hmm. the fact that um, when it's, you know, COVID, a global pandemic, that was the disruption, it forced a lot of women back into our homes to take care of children and family and traditional gender roles in that sense still persists because when the woman is taking care of all this stuff, all this territory at home, it definitely has an effect on employment and uh, her future in that sense. And I think that shows prominently in this particular report. And no country on the planet has achieved gender parity according to the WEF report. But Iceland, Norway and Finland, they're getting kind of close. Well, let's just take a look at um, some of the details from this report and uh, in which areas are the gender gap more prominent.
2: Sure, as you said, I think European countries is taking a lead on gender equality and uh, Iceland obviously ranked as the most gender equal country in the world. For the 14th consecutive year and it is also the only country to have closed more than 90 percent of its gender gap and other countries which are really doing well in this sector are Norway, Finland, New Zealand, Sweden and also Germany so basically if we compare like different continents or compare bigger region Europe has the highest gender parity standing at over 76 percent overtaking North America, and elsewhere in Latin America and the Caribbean, the rate stands at over 74%, while in Eurasia and Central Asia, it's nearly 70%. Unfortunately, the level is lower still in East Asia and the Pacific, that is nearly over 68%. So basically, there remain regional disparity in terms of efforts and also results, in terms of promoting gender equality and also if we compare like economic and political that is the biggest gap to be observed in terms of closing gender gap Mm -hmm. at the current rate it will take 169 years to reach economic parity and also 162 years for political parity so I think that makes sense, as you said, especially with the downward pressure brought by the COVID-19, everyone is facing uncertainties, both coming from the economic and also political sectors. And uh, for women, especially who have been experiencing like inequality situation, so this situation is basically worth becoming worse.
0: Yes, there are ups and downs, uh, twists and turns, and... I think it's important to acknowledge that, but it's also important that we don't sit with it. I think there's so much that needs to be done in that sense. Um, Yes, Josh, could you bring us up to speed on, well, I guess, uh, how the development has taken place in recent years? It seems like there's gradual improvement, but sitbacks occur as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there definitely has been gradual improvement, and we can see that all over the world I Iceland as you mentioned is a fantastic example and it's pretty well known in my in my part of the world given that Iceland is relatively very close to my own country at least at least in the north of the United Kingdom and we know that Iceland succeeds in in many of these areas and I think that a lot of countries look to emulate what Iceland is doing but the reality is that it's not so easy whether that's because of Iceland's relatively tiny population alongside its its wealth, right? Um, that allows it to, to practice, to put these things into practice, to have such a strong commitment to gender equality and political representation, which you meant this happens in Iceland, also in education as well. Um, I know that in Iceland, they really challenge these gender stereotypes in education. And I know in my own country that there are many initiatives to do this as well, but they don't always succeed. the the reasons for which um are are quite difficult to to pinpoint at least in a nutshell at at least but um yeah uh i think that this is this is definitely one of the the biggest issues that we're still facing now
2: i think overall the um situation of promoting gender equality has been gradually improving, but really it has been growing at a very slow space because obviously we can see some conclusion and data coming from this WEF report. I mean, global gender parity has advanced by only 4.1 percentage points since the year 2006. That's also the year that WEF first released its global gender gap report. But I mean, if we look at the annual difference, I mean, the annual increase rate over the past 17 years, the gap has been reduced by only 0.24 percentage points per year. But meantime, of course, there has been like some uplifting situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, compared to last year, progress towards narrowing the gender gap has been more widespread. So it means that more countries are coming up with solutions to try to tackle this problem. I think same thing is happening here in China as well.
0: Mm. Well, according to this World Economic Forum report, China ranks 107th, and has achieved 67.8% gender parity.
2: What'd you make of that? Yes, uh, as you said, according to this WEF report, China is currently ranking 107th, and uh, if we look at I mean, specific areas. Um, China is at over 93% parity on educational attainment and also on economic participation and opportunity. China has closed over 72% of the gender gap. And uh, meantime, I mean, we have been discussing such kind of issues uh, during our previous shows. I mean, we're seeing more like gender equal practices being implemented in like tiny micro-level families and also in the whole society. But I mean, according to another Chinese women's development report in the New Area, which was released earlier this year in April, women still dominate in performing other family responsibilities, including housework and family education. And, uh, but I mean, it also highlights that the social status of Chinese women has been improving because more than 70% of the respondents believe that the status of husband and wife is kind of equal. And uh, also they tend to adopt like joint negotiation in terms of major family decisions like fertility, decision-making, investment and loan, and also house buying. But still we are seeing some gaps, especially when it comes to the responsibility of child care and also being caregiver, because Mm -hmm. the majority of caregivers are still women.
0: Josh, do you have some observations to share in this sense you've lived in the UK and China and some other countries too? What's expected of women in terms of duties and responsibilities as such?
1: Yeah, well, I've been in China for five years now, and I would say that that by no means given me um, any sort of deep experience personally with this but I have noticed I think in China that I think it would be fair to say that there's limited work-life balance support mm. in the workplace here and I think that this plays a huge role when it comes to gender parity um, and I think that women obviously will suffer the most from this given that traditionally women are expected to take more of a responsibility in the household um, and for taking care of children in the early years and i think that balancing work and family responsibilities pro it seems to me remains really challenging for women in china and um i think that this in- in- inadequate availability as well of um child health care services and things like this as well as limited parental leave and things like this i think it basically overall it hinders career advancement and economic participation and i i personally think that economics is at the heart of all of this i think that money and good and finances for for an individual be it a man or a woman um gives independence and will help gender parity because it allows one to invest in one's own education and then ultimately one's own career Mm. um and also economic empowerment in general right um financial resources um having the, the freedom to, to, to do what you need to do, right? Buy a house, buy a car, travel, um, healthcare. Th- there's there's so many things that, that stem from this. And we have this issue in my own country as well. I must admit in the United Kingdom, we have a lot of traditional bias when it comes to gender roles, but I'm um, certainly living in China for some time. I've noticed that I think that this is an issue. I don't know if you guys would agree with me. This is an observation, purely personal, I would say.
2: I think overall, the value of caregivers is not really appreciated enough. I mean, although, you know, caregivers can play a very important role, very crucial role in terms of maintaining families, communities and society as a whole. I think when we talk about caregivers and also all those house chores, being done either by women or men, they are not really appreciated so much. First of all, I think there has been a lack of economic metrics because when you talk about like traditional way of measuring economic development like GDP, we're basically looking at those like market-based activities like what is those companies are earning every year and uh, what's your salary and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, caregiving work is not really included in that metrics Mm. because normally people think it does not really produce or generate tangible value, so that could just lead to a situation that people kind of underestimate the importance the significance of caregiving and meantime you know those I mean think about those chores um, like cooking cleaning and taking care of the child and overseeing his or her homework and talking to and communicating with the teachers at school those things are happening on a daily basis and however those things are usually unpaid and invisible because no one's gonna like try to calculate. I mean, how many rooms you are cleaning the, uh, in one day and uh, um, how many meals you have cooked a year like we do uh, at workplace. Maybe we have monthly workload statistics, you know, try to see how many real value you have been generating. But I mean, for house chores, for those uh, labor works, which have to be endured by those caregivers. No one's doing that kind of work on that. So it's kind of like an invisible and unpaid work. And uh, in this regard, when we are talking about gender gap, because the majority of caregivers are still women. So it's kind of creating a vicious circle because those the value of caregivers is underappreciated. And the meantime, also because of the salary gap that still exists at the workplace. So more women will be like considered as justified caregivers um, mm. rather than men. So yeah, that's kind of like a vicious circle, I would say.
1: May I ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's really interesting because if I'm not wrong, you're, you're saying, quite rightly, I think that care um child care ba- equates to work right but i guess that the difference is is that usually that doesn't always equate to economic empowerment right as in that there's no not always a tangible or predictable financial reward for that work right it's just that it's not appreciated and recognized enough and um if, if you guys agree that financial resources and economic opportunities are essential for gender equality. That That's what I think. Do, I wonder, do you think that that kind of work should have a financial reward? Should should the household income be divided or shared um, through legislation or something like this? Because it seems to me that maybe that maybe that could be a solution? I'm not sure.
0: Well, That's an interesting proposition. Why can't, let's say, the government give a little bit more subsidies to uh, those families as such who... uh... But the thing is, um, you know, that's going to be another, I would think, maybe controversial thing as well if the government is... Yeah, yeah, right? If the government is directly financially supporting families with babies... Or even the
1: family income, I mean, from the breadwinners... Salary—it's just a yeah. question because yeah. I guess if there's no financial result, how can imp- financial economic empowerment ever exist? Yeah, for, that for the female in this scenario.
0: So is it like the husband should give her—that is the wife—a monthly salary?
1: <laughs> that's my. Co- that's yeah. I guess it's a. Que- that's my question. Yeah. Maybe he what should, but the that? thing
0: is, if the government sort of butts in, then that's not really a very commendable way to deal with it maybe but maybe it does take an outside voice to say this has to happen
2: Well, I think um, maybe no government would actually, you know, Mm -hmm. pays for that kind of labor. But I mean, the the real question is, are people acknowledging that caregivers are also generating economic value? Because in reality, you don't really see a lot of people will just uh, talk about that. And people don't really even realize that. Even within a small family for the breadwinner, maybe for a long period of time, the breadwinner will just... uh, ignore the value or ignore the help coming mm-hmm. from the person who is taking care of the majority of caregiving chores sh- at the house.
0: Yes. And the way you put it is so interesting, Li because you said that uh, it's she doing the housework, or, or if it's a man doing yes. housework, mm-hmm. uh, they're generating economic outcome. Of course. But mm-hmm. that's not real money that goes into your pocket the way most families see it or individuals see it, is possibly you're saving money because otherwise you need to employ someone to do this but if this this person is washing dishes taking care of the baby uh and, and all this all these things and you're just doing it out of your your will or your your labor and then that doesn't cost the family anything extra but in fact it's like yeah she's or this person is basically just saving you the expense, but how do you value that, you know, Mm -hmm. numerically or maybe sometimes I don't necessarily think that people are asking for dollars or yuan in this sense, but but just some kind of acknowledgement, yes. And also once you come back to the workforce, cause the baby is not gonna stay a baby forever thing. And she might be coming back into the workplace, but making that transition is, is really hard uh, as well. And we have discussed this on the show before, but the thing is when the society demands that we be caretakers, breadwinners and beauty queens all at once, and that's just enough to make anyone to want to bust out of town, so to speak, But and that's the thing that I find it to be like extra pressure for women these days, because in the past, it's almost like you can just focus on one of the things that I just mentioned, but now you need to do them all. Otherwise, you're judged. The other day, once when I I saw this piece of news, I just I just couldn't get over the fact. I just just got really mad. Yeah, so she's this um, professional who's the top in her field. And then the news reports focused on that she wore good makeup, that she's pretty. And then mm. it just disgusted me. Um Well, there are two ways to look at this. One way is like, oh, she's breaking through uh, stereotypes, mm. uh, stereotypical views on what a very capable woman in that field, which is preoccupied by men. Um, and, you know, in wearing makeup and looking pretty is actually something great about that. I mean, I I just I didn't appreciate the way of looking at it. It seems
2: that there are just too many assumptions, right?
0: Yeah, and we could do less for sure. (laughs) And when we're looking at this uh, closing the gender gap issue, actually um, to me this is not rocket science anymore because we've been looking at this for years and essentially I think it's about equal opportunities and also giving people the necessary support if possible and the necessary support in this sense could just be more support in the home and taking care of babies and those kind of things and if more resources can go to these areas then then life would be a lot easier for women we keep on saying this because this is you know this is The gender gap we're talking about. So it's not necessarily pitting one gender against the other because to proceed, to progress, we need both sides to join hands (laughs) to really make this work together. Um, So yes, I'd just like to borrow your thoughts on what do you think about the ways to go when it comes to shortening this gap and possibly one day closing it.
1: I think there's a lot of things that can be done. I think that Lee mentioned something quite important. And that's just recognition, Um, recognition of labor, whatever that may be, and the effort that people put in. But obviously, that's not enough at all. I think that for me, as I've mentioned before, a lot of it comes down to to money, it comes down to financial freedom. Um, I think that that is the most powerful thing. It's just the way that our societies work, money is power. And I think that things like pay transparency, Um, Mm. Encouraging transparency in pay practices to to help identify and address uh, pay disparities. That's something that is being pushed for in a lot of countries um, and companies have many ingenious ways of getting around this. But this is something, for example, something that's quite easy to do in principle, Mm. equal pay legislation. uh, Again, very difficult to implement, but still this is something um, and also promoting things like flexible work Mm. arrangements. such as uh, flexible working hours better work-life balance for employees i think that this often ultimately benefits the f- the female uh, in this situation especially when it comes to things like childcare. so i think when it comes to it for me these are the most f- fundamental things that will make a difference
0: yes i like the latter couple of points particularly better <laughs> um the thing is when you look at the chinese statistics Chinese women are already so much ahead of many, 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 many countries in terms of educational attainment, in terms of labor participation. They're that hardworking. You know, how much more? Or what more do you want from these women? She's done everything she can in her power in a lot of these circumstances. So, yes, I think we need more support in those softer areas, which really matters a lot to our overall well-being in that sense. Child and elder care infrastructure and policy that allows mothers to balance work and family. And again, let me reiterate this, we need men and women to work together on this one to make some real progress in closing the gender gap. You're listening to Roundtable coming up next. We'll take a look at the vibrant music scene in Shanghai, China.
3: How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions?
1: I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education,
3: employment income. We can pursue
1: development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations.
3: The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. keeps the world turning.
1: This is Roundtable.
0: You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, musicals are seeing robust growth in China this year. Does the reliance on established properties threaten the industry's creativity? And. One social media influencer has attracted 20 million followers within six months for exposing deceptive business practices. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcasts. When you're there and you're so inclined, please give us a five-star review. It will help other folks find the show. And we love that you listen to the show and we want to hear from you. Your observations, questions, and comments are all appreciated. We read every single email and listen to every single voice memo you sent us. You can reach us at ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart segment. Now, let's continue today's discussion on Roundtable. China's musical theater scene is enjoying quite the boom this year. The big trend now is to perform musicals in Chinese. The thinking behind isn't particularly difficult to understand. That is, to make the content more accessible to your local Chinese audience. Either translating from foreign languages or creating new content in Chinese, there's one thing these musical productions share. That is, to build on existing popular properties. Is it good or bad for the long-term growth of musicals in China? So Li, please give us the lay of the land of popular musical productions in China, and apparently three main strands in the market really stand out.
2: Yes, I think there are three main players in the current China's musical theater market. And the first one is Chinese versions of those classic musicals. For example, the Chinese version of the global hit shows, The Phantom of the Opera and also Hamlet premiered in Shanghai in May 2023 and both are among the world's most successful and well-known musicals and this time they were translated to Chinese to really cater to the local audience in the country and also there is the second type which is the original overseas production for example the French original Romeo and Juliet was the first overseas musical to be introduced to the Chinese market in three years and it stars Uh, the original cast members who played the lead roles in the musical's world debut over 20 years ago and uh, it involves a handful of appealing songs that global audiences are pretty much familiar with and also the British production Titanic will be shown in October to celebrate its 10th anniversary since its premiere in London in 2013 and uh, the last type is domestic musical Mm. I think the past three years we have been seeing a lot of domestic musical produced Uh, for example The Bad Keys and also The Long Night they're both adapted from very popular TV drama of the same name and they were also staged 100 times in Shanghai in the past six months and both works actually have received pretty positive rating from audience I mean higher than 9 out of 10 rating on review platforms but meantime it seems that there remain a little chain of contempt when we talk about these three major players And that's pretty interesting because people would think that the original overseas production of musicals is better than the Chinese version of classic musicals. And then the last one would be domestic musicals.
0: What explains that kind of order, almost like a kind of pecking order in a way, which, which I find to be a little bit strange. <laughs> Josh, do you have some thoughts possibly about this? And, you know, just also the overall thriving scene for musicals. And this is something that performance artists and those who work in the industry have been waiting for a long time.
1: Well, I guess the pecking order, I I can't explain all of it. But I guess that chronologically speaking, it would make sense if Broadway musicals were quite the emergence of broadway musicals i think it would be fair to say has led to maybe not influenced completely but led to the emergence of more local production so that that may in some way describe the pecking order if such a pecking order um is really existing in that sense um and i, I think there's a lot of reasons for this I, I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to the rising popularity of musicals and also the increase the emergence of local productions and I, I think that first of all let's be honest with a lot of things and we've discussed this before about the film industry in china as well and it seems to me that there's a lot of similarities between the emergence of uh, local productions and the slightly declining influence of a lot of western productions like hollywood movies broadway musicals right or certain types and things like that although as i'm sure we'll discuss there are several broadway musicals that are incredibly successful in china and continue to see a lot of success and i think the reason is the same it's china's thriving economy i i really think that 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 is uh a, a main issue i think this leads to an increase in disposable income for many individuals on the individual level and it's also allowed for um more people to buy tickets and i think that also china now is actively encouraging cultural exchange, artistic exchange. And um, this includes the import of Western shows um, and has further boosted the appeal of Broadway musicals. Um, So that's my two cents on this. And uh, I I think that goes some way to explain this pecking order as you describe it.
0: Yeah. Um, Also, I think this might have something to do with um, this little dark corner in our minds of uh, just human nature that We might gain this secret sense of satisfactory by thinking, oh, I'm just that tad better than someone else, you know? And then when I looked at the history of musicals and also opera, and then it explained a lot. Because if you really want to go down the chain of contempt, then those who go to the opera would... Possibly have a certain level of disdain to those who go to the musical. (laughs) Also, musicals are made in popular styles of music and dance. And most likely, it should be in the language of the audience. And musicals are a relatively younger genre than opera. And that's why most of these musicals are in English. But the opera is traditional and is... Always in the language of the original story or text written, and therefore often they're in Italian or some of the other languages, which um, you know is is more well. Certainly, there are less people speaking Italian or some of those languages as opposed to English as such. So I think it's only natural as the musical industry develops in China, then there should be um, these musical and entertainment products that are made in Chinese, that are just easier for the local audience to understand.
2: Yes, I think it's pretty much similar to look at fandom's love toward like overseas films and also Chinese adaption because you always want 100% original cast plots and production and you think that can bring the best experience. And in terms of, you know, local production, I would say maybe because the musical market is pretty like emerging market here in China. I mean, it has not really gained wide attention since a few years ago, maybe because of certain entertainment shows and also, of course, more production coming from the market. And also for the audience, I would say previously, you know, it could be believed that musicals, are something for children you know especially in the local market it's not maybe because we don't already have so many good quality musicals targeting adult audience produced locally and now in recent years we're seeing more productions coming from the market that kind of like has gained you know traction from audience but meantime I think most audience are pretty like taking like a wait and see attitude toward that we're hoping that we can produce really good quality local production but meantime are those local production as good as those classic musicals which have been produced and adapted and bettered years after years that's also a question yeah, and also when you've heard or read or that
0: this musical came from Broadway or the West End and then it sold millions of tickets around the world already, and then you know, okay, I can trust this will be a good experience and I'm gonna go see it. So it's it's as simple as that sometimes and but to me it's really exciting that um, you know, in New York City, the Phantom of the Opera has dimmed lights mainly because of quite expensive operational cost as such but we're seeing the Chinese version being sung on stage here in China and and that's that's something new and that's refreshing and I think something as a Chinese person you can understand it obviously so that that's something to look forward to and that also though is one of the things some people are a bit worried because the English, Lyrics are good, and if you've listened to the original, then you're familiar with it. You know it's that standard, up there, high. But the Chinese version, would it be able to do the same kind of rhymes? Would it sound nice? Well, that's a question mark that it probably still needs to prove to the audience.
2: Yes, because... I mean, it makes sense, you know, audience would have that kind of concerns because previously, when we look at those Chinese versions of classic musicals, translations can be really tricky because I think it's a very, you know, important tool for those musical operators who try to localize their business is very important to to help local audience to understand the musical however we've seen some really pretty bad translations which however you know hinder or deteriorate the viewing experience for audiences for example you know the chinese versions of of romeo and juliet Mm. uh, when it seems that the chinese version turned the miserable pair's love story into a cliche rating and also confusing mess according to some audience. You know, for example, when Julia's Wetners and Romeo's two friends start seeing The Beautiful, the Ugly near the end of the show's first half, it was really translated into Chinese as the beauty and the beast. So it can be really misleading and confusing for local audience. So that's why you know there are suggestions saying that if we are going to promote this kind of Chinese version, or localized version of classical music, you have to make sure the translation is of good quality. That's a very good point, and I know Josh, you have something to add here, but let me just
0: quickly jump in for two sentences. When the musical La Meszarabs first appeared, it was in French, and then it was translated into English, which is the version that people around the world are probably far more familiar with. Well, it's not surprising, I suppose, for most people that um, those who listen to the original French version probably would, um, didn't particularly like the English version in that sense. So, Josh, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, my thoughts are that this isn't really a new issue, and... I think that it's interesting when you mention French because actually so many performances and and also you you briefly mentioned opera, which of course is basically strictly sung in Italian. Um, And if you go to a traditional opera, uh, then you will see subtitles underneath uh, as the opera singer is singing, right? Mm. And also there's a lot of other artistic mediums where this issue exists as well. Uh, for example the writer dostoevsky right um i had to read some of his books at university and i and i really like his books but i've been told again and again that of course i read them in english and they're not written in english they're written in russian and i've been told many many times that you have to read them in russian to get the proper meaning right and i guess that the question really is is um it's it's all about the translator really and i think all of this just illustrates how important proper translation is and also how difficult translation can be and that translation as i'm sure you guys really appreciate this on this show given that you're not speaking in your your first language but you're speaking in another language completely fluently bilingually so that translation is not a black and white thing some things are untranslatable and um still though i i think that actually i think it's quite beautiful i think the translation is an art in itself And I think that it actually opens up, uh, I might be going too far for some people here, but I think that it opens up an opportunity for an almost like a a separate artistic medium within that in order to create maybe an even more beautiful script or something like this. What do you think? Am I going too far with it here?
3: (laughs) I
0: don't think you've gone too far at all, Josh. And for a lot of people, if it's really brilliant translation, then it's almost like another process of creation, but uh, you're building on, you know, this work in another language. So um, and really good translation will propel a particular show or artistic medium to thrive globally or, you know, outside of its home country. I guess with musicals, we are still at the nascent stage of this whole process. And also another challenge that the musical industry is confronting is that given this is a relatively new music entertainment form imported from foreign countries, and in China, the way talent has been scouted and has been been allowed to grow and really enjoy popularity is limited, and therefore we've seen it's through sometimes reality shows, a singing contests that's got the theme of musicals can introduce these uh, young talent to a wider audience. But the problem is, it seems like a lot of the times it could be fans of these individuals who buy the tickets instead of Okay, this is what some of the maybe slightly highbrow um, critics say, instead of having a real appreciation to musicals as an artistic form, go get the tickets. And then because it's these popular young talents that become the draw of the box office and They're getting all the attention and possibly uh, opportunities and resources, and it might not be good for the overall development of musicals in China. Do you have some thoughts about that argument?
2: I would say, you know, more attention, the better. It's always... It works for all industries, and I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the cinema industry and also any other emerging industries. When this industry is developing into a certain stage, of course, it, it will just uh, attract certain attention from the public, and maybe some certain stars will also come up in the sector.
1: Well, yeah, and it, it, it's not just dancing, singing, and acting. It's doing those three at the same time, yeah. right? Um, And so you have to be I mean, actors, professional actors are usually in really good shape depending on the role that they're in. But musical theater stage performers are often in incredible shape. So that's another thing that you can add on maybe as a fourth is that they have to maintain their diet, their fitness, all of these things. They're basically athletes at the same time. And yeah, it's obviously something that's not easy to transition into. Um, It takes an incredible amount of work and an incredible amount of talent.
0: Yes, indeed. And for domestic productions that are mushrooming as well, and often they draw from famous Chinese folklore or ancient stories that everybody knows in China, or from those popular TV shows that you mentioned earlier, The Bad Kids. Oh, I really love that show. The in Chinese, right? Yeah. And, uh, but you got me all curious now. I really want to check it out because uh, on the screen, it's a crime mystery at kind of show. But how do you transform that onto the stage? That is really interesting. What are some of the hurdles to overcome to make these domestic productions better?
2: Well, I think there is like a very interesting double side sword when it comes to adapting very successful TV dramas into musicals because as you said maybe there are already like a large group of fans of this drama and they are very familiar with the plots with the storyline and when you hear that this work is being adapted into another genre you are very curious and you hold really high expectation when you come to the theater and that could also bring extra challenges for the production team of musicals Mm -hmm. because how do you make sure you are providing more interesting content and to your audience with a different types of genre and also maybe for those like new works which don't really have a lot of attention from the audience They might also be diving for, like, producing certain IP because that is the best way, quickest way to attract attention, Mm -hmm. I would say. But all in all, I would say, you know, let the work speak. Yes.
0: And these days we're seeing more international musical production troops come to China as well. It's great that we're increasingly just putting COVID behind us. And I think that would be a really good boost for the industry in general to also showcase what international standards are that might inspire local talent to also make their crafts better and ultimately bring the audience with better performances. Before we go, I'd also like to provide you with just a tiny Bit of background info of China's relations to musicals in general. Well, we have a long history of musical theater from lyric poetry to the mixed musical stylings of yuan Dynasty drama to say nothing of various regional operas. And as we see that in China, there's um, more melding of these traditions with um, the business models and production techniques of Broadway or the West End. And it's really interesting to see how the musical industry develops in this country. Coming up next, One social media influencer has attracted 20 million followers within six months for exposing deceptive business practices. Stay tuned to find out more on that.
3: Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West and understanding is the goal.
0: It's the hour of Ramtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. In a digital age where consumer trust is somewhat elusive, one Chinese influencer has captured the attention of millions by exposing false advertising business practices. B Tai, in his 20s, has garnered almost 20 million fans within just six months. He's been posting videos which showcase deceptive business practices in restaurants, milk tea shops, and other establishments. His expose videos have not only resonated with the public, but also led to collaborations with local officials in an effort to protect consumer rights. So what makes these videos
2: so popular? I would say he's really doing the job or the work of local market regulation authorities in a very interesting way, because he's also he's also sharing the whole process. For example, in one video, Tai shows up to a hot pot restaurant in Chengdu that had invited him to visit, actually. However, he found he received a serving of beef, 20 grams less than what he was advertised Mm. on the menu. That's a shortfall of 17%. And very interestingly, the following day, you know, maybe the operation staff of this restaurant flew from Chongqing to Chengdu to make apology in person to Thai and also promising to provide customers with weighing skills in the store to check that they are given the right amounts in the future. And also he's doing the same thing in like milk tea shops and fruit stalls. And uh, in some of his videos, he exposed like an ethical repairman who charged clients high prices. And uh, for example, in one video, he exposes that a fruit store in Shenzhen for forcibly selling rotten durian to a customer and also try to intimidate her when she asked for a refund and uh, also local market supervisors then visited the market with B tied together where the rotten durians were sold and replaced all the scales there was uh, with standardized electronic scales so it seems that he's doing good thing To safeguard customers' rights and also to try to review those unfair business practices. Yeah. Josh, what do you think about these? um, You know, the
0: popularity of these videos? Maybe it does hit on the right spot as individual consumers. You're relying on the business's own conscience whether they're going to give you the exact proportion and amount of goods that you paid for.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of positives to take away from this. I think that influencer accountability which is um, you know, if if an influencer's sponsored content features false advertising, then their followers can call them out, right? Um they can comment and you you run the risk of losing your credibility as an influencer. So, there's a lot of accountability, a lot more accountability when social media plays a part in this, but also we know that these days our content is becoming more and more limited. We're going, we're getting in the smaller and smaller echo chamber of content when it comes to um, filtering. You know the the information that we want, uh, and just be, and just looking at w- what the algorithm thinks we want, and so we really run the risk of not even diversifying. Our options in terms of restaurants and things like this. But when it comes to something as specific as like cleanliness or something like this, the, the quality of the food on your plate or the size of the portion,
3: mm.
1: I think that this is quite this is one of the rare occasions where I think this is quite a good thing mm. overall, I would say.
0: And me. Josh, you bring up a really good point in terms of what about what's next for this social media influencer because he's building a reputation on being authentic and also fair so he's exposing the bad practices but in the future like how do social media influencers make money it's usually through sponsorships and Mm. you can't say bad things to your patrons who are the company that's paying you, then that kind of defeats, you know, what he does. And also that explains Mm. why we're seeing like so much, oh, this is great. Oh, that product is awesome. Blah, blah, blah stuff on social media because there's the money works, you know, behind the scene. So, well, that's just, you know, a thought that how is this guy going to continue with his reputation? Now he's sort of acting as, you know, the fair judge and and he's doing a really good job. I think this is very much appreciated. But what's going to happen next? You know, if he wants to survive in the social media space
2: yes and also another question is that i think this guy is setting a really good example for average consumers in terms of how to safeguard your right because usually i'm quite shocked that those restaurant owners and also local market regulation authorities are having really quick response after his videos were published but I mean of course it, uh, this this kind of video is showing like like a clear process of how to handle such cases but also I'm concerned that as an average consumer who does not have such huge attention online is there like a proper quick way for me to report this kind of unfair or dishonest business practices and in the meantime I can also get such a quick response. I think that's also the wish coming from all the consumers out there who are watching his videos. Yeah.
0: Very interesting stuff. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Li Yi and Josh Carterell for joining the discussion. I'm Hu Young. We'll see you next time.